Tom Woods Show, episode 1779. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody, you ever get the feeling that you're living in a completely different reality from your friends and coworkers? I have a funny feeling you could use a haven of sanity right about now. Well, a wildly disproportionate percentage of the dwindling number of normal people in the world can be found inside the Tom Woods Show elite. Join me there and find yourself a haven of sanity. Entry is at supportinglisteners.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. All right, I've got a few things to tell you about what's going on in the show over the next week and a half or so. I think I'm probably going to skip Thanksgiving. I may just not have an episode on Thanksgiving so I can enjoy Thanksgiving. So that's a possibility. There may not be a Tom Woods Show episode that day, in which case you can treat yourself to one of the great many Tom Woods Show episodes you may have missed from the past. Some of you will write to me angrily, I've never missed a Tom Woods Show episode. I'm not speaking to you, salt of the earth, cream of the crop people. But all the same, that's probably what's going to happen. Secondly, so nothing's happened to me if you don't see an episode on Thanksgiving. That's my point. I'm still alive. Secondly, I have coming up later this week, I've got John Schaefer, who is from the metal band Iced Earth, who is pretty hardcore anti-lockdown, and he was a Ron Paul guy, and uh, I saw a video he made, and I thought, wow, I have to talk to this guy, and what a great conversation we had. So don't miss that. If it says music in the title... Don't get scared that it's one of my crazy progressive rock episodes and you're not going to enjoy it. Don't make that mistake because you're going to miss one of the great conversations I've had recently. So that's the first thing. Uh, Then Friday this week, we got a great discussion between Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute, Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and me. So you'll enjoy that. Then next week, I've got a super special guest coming on. I'm still trying to work out the logistics, but I think it should work. And when it happens, you'll know this was the super special guest Tom was talking about. So Michael Beatrice today with his brand new book, or the second edition rather, of his book, COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tom. All right. Well, you have got, maybe it's tied for the first book on this general topic uh, with uh, Jay Richards' co-authored book, The Price of Panic. But in particular, you're focusing exclusively on the lockdown question. And this is something that, if we have any sense, is going to be studied very deeply for a good long time after all this is over. It should be. So, (laughs) yeah, I I mean, we've never experienced anything quite like that. I mean, even the deprivations that people suffered when they were ration cards during World War II – Well, I still think that that was less of a dystopia because at least I know World War II is occurring. I know the basic contours of what's going on. And I know World War II will have an end and there won't be any more ration cards and life will go back to normal. This thing is very, very hard to get a handle on exactly what the metrics are and when we're going to declare victory and the numbers are all crazy and the PCR testing is loopy and all that. So first of all, what is your background and how did you get into this topic? So prior to COVID, prior to 2020, I've written uh, 15 uh, business books, mostly career reference guides published by McGraw-Hill. And I was kind of recreationally following this, really like everybody around the world. And I was particularly following the two cruise ships back in February and March. And the second cruise ship, the Grand Princess, uh, that was out to sea for four or five days uh, off of uh, California, 
I'd actually been on that cruise ship on one of its first couple voyages about 20 some years ago. And so it was a little more interesting. If you remember when that was porting in uh, through the San Francisco Bay, it was kind of covered like it was the Bronco chase, right? And, and then what was interesting was it docked and nothing really happened. And I thought that's strange, you know, Wuhan had locked down and there's been a lot of hype and it's a predominantly elderly population on a cruise ship. And so that sort of passed. And then about 10 days later, the Imperial College released their model that predicted in a do-nothing scenario, we would suffer uh, 2.2 million deaths by summer. And I thought, whoa, that's huge, right? That's very serious. So, but it was still hard for me to reconcile with the, uh, with the cruise ships. And so I, I took the model apart and I found on the Lancet uh, all the demographic data from the two cruise ships. I, I did some of my own math. We should have had 155 deaths on those cruise ships if that model was right. And we ended up having 10. And they were all elderly and seven were with comorbidities. And so it was clear in that type of a scenario, right? It was a do-nothing scenario. It was self-contained. There was no doubt that that would be about the best scientific experiment, which it still is to date. And so then I thought, oh, this is getting nuts, right? California locked down first, Illinois and New York followed. And, uh, and then I was searching online for some information. I thought, somebody's got to be seeing what I see, right? And I wasn't on Twitter yet. And I couldn't find any articles on it. And then I went to several people in the news that I trusted. Still didn't really find anything. This was on Twitter, by the way. I just went on websites. I wasn't on Twitter. And then I found somebody in the news had retweeted a guy named Alex Berenson. And Alex had tweeted out like crazy in late March. And I fact-checked some of his work uh, to get comfortable with his message. And it it all checked out. It always says checked out. So I popped Alex an email and... uh, congratulated him on, you know, being like somebody that just saw, saw some reality here. And then a few days later, I, I just sat down and decided when well, we hit 40 million people unemployed because of my background writing business books, that's what prompted me to, uh, to sit down and write the first edition. The second edition actually is uh, just now came out a couple of days ago, but that's what, that's what got me going on this. You know, these days it's like, you can't even have an opinion on something unless you're an epidemiologist or a virologist or something just completely ridiculous. What would a, why would an epidemiologist have any particular insight into the, let's say, economic and other consequences of, for one thing, a policy that's never been implemented before and never even been advocated, much less implemented? Why would they have any particular insight? And what class did they take that teaches them how to analyze something like this? It's just- Right, so you're, you're exactly right. So if you listen to Dr. Fauci or you listen to you know, Michael Osterholm on, on Biden's team, and you listen to Tom Frieden and, and you know who all these guys are. So if you listen to them, if you were only trying to mitigate the virus to an absolute zero with no consequences of lockdowns, you, you would follow them. But unfortunately, we, we live in a whole, everything about life, life and society is, is a balance of risk and consequence. Everything is. And so all the people that, that have the biggest microphones in the mainstream media, they really only talk about one side. They don't talk about the collateral consequences in terms of deaths of despair and things that have gone untreated, things that have gone undiagnosed, 30 million plus kids that are losing a year in education. I mean, the list is endless. Uh, and we only r- really, the, the majority of Americans and probably people worldwide only kind of hear one side of that. All right. I've, I want to start off actually with, I think, the toughest material. I think it's not that difficult, even if there's still a lot of people who need to hear it and get it through their thick skulls to understand the problems with lockdowns in general that we've seen 
in the Western world, yes, but even more severely in the developing world. I think it's hard for somebody to deny that imposing lockdowns in people living hand-to-mouth existences is a really, really bad and deadly idea. So that up until a couple of weeks ago, even the lockdowners were saying, oh, come on, it's a straw man. Tyler Cowen said, it's a straw man. There aren't going to be any more lockdowns. You guys are just full of it. You're trying to panic people. And now, of course, they're right back to lockdowns, just as we knew they would be. I think it's easy for people to see if they really are, are presented with the data and they're told, look, we have all these problems. We have starvation threatened in some places. We have uh, depression and, and suicide. Well, you know, they, they can get that. But what, what some people have come back with is it's not right to say that lockdowns just flat out don't work or that the, the costs outweigh the benefits because we have seen, as brutal as it was, that China, which is back to normal life, did seem to get the virus under control through sheer brutality. And there are some East Asian countries that got through with a fairly light touch that are doing pretty well. So that just goes to show that in the West, we're too stupid and backward and individualistic to go along with uh, measures like this. So lockdowns do work. So what do you say to that? Well, so I'd say, one, I think that the data out of China, it is open. Uh, it's it's a little bit unreliable or clear, but but it, let's just talk about China, South Korea, and Japan for a moment. So um, Japan really did lock down, and South Korea had a um, they, they did more tracing than a strict lockdown. Well, one thing that I've read in uh, a couple different journal articles, so most of my sources in the book and that I continue to refl- go back to, are in the Lancet and uh, in uh, Matarx Four, and so it does feel like there's perhaps a predisposition in, uh, in some of those Far East countries because it's a coronavirus, it's from there. There might be uh, a little bit of uh, more like T-cell type of immunity or built-in immunity. And that's why there's been more resistance because when you look at Japan, they've got an elderly population. It's actually a higher smoking, for example, country than, than America. And they, they really haven't suffered. I mean, really, they're like down, they really haven't had any measurable. I think, they're, I think South Korea and Japan might be in the, in the 14 deaths per million type, you know, that type of range, very, very low. Uh, and so I think, uh, I think a better comparison is really Western Europe type, you know, countries and, uh, and then to a degree, you know, Mexico. And because we've had the biggest uh, impact in America on, a segment of the population has been Hispanics. So I think those are better comparisons uh, to compare us to Western Europe and, and maybe even some of the data that's come out of Mexico. The Japan example is particularly interesting because it's not like early on, and by early on I mean like April-ish, it's not like the, uh, the lockdowners were telling us, oh, Japan's going to be fine, don't worry about it. They were saying Japan is going to reap a terrible whirlwind for not having a hard lockdown. That's what they were telling us. They were saying first that Japan's lying about the numbers to keep up confidence for the Olympics. And then it was they're not doing enough to lock down and their hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. That's what they were all saying. Now they're saying, oh, it's a model for what to do. That's not what they were saying at the time. They say that once it turns out in this more favorable way. And then also (laughs) with the Japan question, I guess I saw it just constantly going up and down, what they thought about Japan. It was either Japan's doing well, Japan's going to get hit by a second wave. None of those things happened. And then after after all the dust cleared, it was, oh, you know what it was? It was masks. Like they always have some 
explanation. It can't be that they don't fully understand how the virus works or that maybe there's an Asian variant or maybe there's pre-existing immunity in some parts of the world. It's always going to be some little bumper sticker slogan. Yeah, you know, and, and there's a lot of uh, revisionist history around Sweden and reinterpreting, you know, what happened and coming up with, with uh, you know, qualifiers for why Sweden has fared well without a lockdown, kind of in, in the midst of uh, Europe is having a number of countries uh, are having a bit of a second wave. Actually, a number of countries are having their first wave, right? They really didn't get through it. If you look at the more Eastern European countries, they really didn't have a first wave and they're, they're, they're getting it hard right now. Uh, and... Uh, and so I think when you look at a lot of these countries, uh, and let's pull the Far East, I do think that's different than comparing it to the United States. But I thought you wrote a good piece, uh, if it came out today or one of the last couple of days, and it was, it was about mitigation, uh, mitigation tactics not working, right? And what I, wanted to, what I was thinking about it when I read that is the default for all of our states is to be open. We should be open. So when you look at the two most open states in America, you've got South Dakota and you've got Florida, the places that are locked down should be blowing them away. They should be far outperforming from a COVID perspective, Florida and South Dakota. And when you look at the data around every single state that surrounds uh, South Dakota, they're all getting hit kind of equally. But the most interesting part of this is that given that, and you know this because I've seen a number of your um, interviews on YouTube and, and your you know, newsletters, you know this, right? So there's, there's a little bit of uh, unreliability in, in all the data. So of all the COVID-19 deaths, right now we're at 350,000 excess deaths for the year. Probably two-thirds of those are real COVID ones. So we probably have, a, of the 250 recorded, about 180,000 are, are probably real. And I'm not a COVID denier. That's a real number. I actually lost a cousin to COVID. Um, who was at a care facility in Detroit in, in April. I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm not a COVID denier. It's about a proportionate response. But when you look at, um, when you look at all cause deaths, South Dakota is ranked uh, 48th in the country. They're only up 3% where America's up 12% above average. And Florida is up about uh, in the teens. They're, they're more average. They're like top 20. Um, but, but I think the message is, if you're locked down, you should be crushing the COVID performance of uh, South Dakota and Florida, and and we're not. And to me, that's one of the biggest substantiations. You know, Florida opened up seven weeks ago, and you know they're 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 pretty flat, and they're not even having a bump like some of the other countries, or excuse me, other states in the Midwest, and even a couple along the uh, Atlantic coast. So, um, you live in a great state, and I think it's awesome that you're daughter actually has the opportunity to be face-to-face in classes because there's tens of millions of kids that don't. Well, not to mention some of the deaths that will occur because of the lockdowns, because of things like, you know, missed cancer screenings and stuff like that. We won't see those numbers this year. We might not see them for three or four years. Right. So even if Florida were 4% worse than another state, well, in the long run, it could still be ahead because we're not factoring in the fact that some of the deaths by lockdown are delayed deaths? Uh, no doubt about it. I mean, there was a study uh, that I've cited, uh, a couple different ones, but, but an interesting one was early on, and it was out of England, and they predicted uh, an extra 60,000, which would be a 50% increase in, um, in cancer deaths uh, that would happen over the next two years just because things didn't get diagnosed. And, 
uh, and, and then they were, you know, this was during the hard lockdowns. And the thing that's sort of insane, Thomas, again, you don't have to be a COVID denier, right? You can believe in this, but we locked down under the guise that in a worst case scenario, we would have a tenfold shortfall in hospital beds and ICUs. Our best case scenario was a threefold. Right now, nationally, we're at 7.7% of capacity, meaning of all the hospital beds occupied, uh, just you know, 78% are occupied by people with COVID, which means they're prob- it's probably about 5% of actual COVID symptomatic. You know, people are in there for, for COVID-19. And so we're at zero risk. One thing we are, we're at zero risk of running out of hospital beds. That is a fact. We, we were not even close in New York uh, at our peak. And so the question is, what's our end game, right? Doc, uh, Dr. Uh, Osterholm said we should do a national lockdown for four to six weeks. And the thing I thought is, but what's our end game, right? Because you made a comment uh, in a presentation that I saw the other day. It might have been here in Texas, but you made a comment of we're, delay- we're, we're only delaying the inevitable with huge consequences. And that was a question I posed to some doctors that I spoke with back in April and, and May when I was writing this is, What's the end game on this? And aren't we just simply prolonging and inevitable? The only reasonable thing that you can do with, with all the data that we have is you definitely need to insulate the people that are vulnerable. So like I've got 89-year-old parents in Detroit. We haven't really, my brother and I haven't let them, you know, hardly leave their property uh, for eight months. And uh, I got a 20-year-old son who's away at college and I've told him to live his life as freely as he can. Those are really the types of things. Instead of this one size fits all, uh, you know, let's just crush the economy, let's crush kids' futures or their academic standing for a couple of years and all the small businesses and all the other consequences you're aware of. I like your point, by the way, that a state like Florida should not be doing slightly worse or the same. It should be doing much, much, much worse. Much worse. And, and because I said the same thing about Sweden. I said, don't, don't tell me that Sweden is in the middle of the pack for death rate and that this means it's terrible. Sweden should be far and away the number one death destination in the world with piles of corpses lining the streets if this kind of lockdown was justified. And if it isn't, that alone is a victory. And that's a message that doesn't get out, right? Winning is batting average with no lockdowns. I mean, I know that sounds sort of morbid, but, but we're making huge decisions here. And that's how really all, all policies are really made. You're balancing you know, risk and consequence and things. Um, and, and again, when you look at places like Sweden and South Dakota and Florida, um, they need to be getting blown away by the lockdown areas to justify it. And they're, they're just not, uh, and when you see the places that have strict mask mandates, they don't really outperform the places that are that are that are, don't like your state, like South Dakota. Um, and they, it, it seems common sense that those places, you know, it's, it's and the best one really is is comparing South Dakota to every single neighboring state around it, even like Idaho. Idaho is at nine percent plus in excess deaths to South Dakota's three. Uh, and, and if you look at the curves in cases and hospitalizations with Colorado and Idaho and uh, North Dakota, it's actually getting hit pretty good, uh, and Minnesota and Iowa, you know, they're, they're, all, they're all the same, which to me shows you this thing, you know, your Alex Berenson quote, virus is going to virus. When this thing decides to hit, it is like a little mini hurricane making a landfall, you know, a cat two, let's say in Florida, 
and it blows through and then it kind of seems to just dissipate uh, within about three to four weeks in every single place. So uh, it's hard to understand why we're locking down and what the end game is. You know, if someone could actually say, here's the number, you know, when they, when they base policies on cases where when hospitalizations are very, very low, like New York is, a, you know, maybe under 1% of total hospital beds, and they're talking about locking down because they're up an extra 2% in positives um, as, as a product of testing, right? Positive cases. And it's like, it's insane, right? We're, we're never going to get to an absolute zero. That is, even with a vaccine, that is an unrealistic expectation. And I, I you know, it feels like Dr. Scott Ellis is one of the only people in a leadership role, and he'll be leaving that, of course, but uh, with any, any sort of balance or reasoning. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a minute because what I've heard from the other side is that, yes, it's true that really all the lockdowns can hope to do is to delay a bit. But what they say is a delayed COVID-19 infection, like an infection that you get three months from now is much better than an infection now because three months from now, the treatments will be even better our knowledge will be even greater, will be even closer to a vaccine. So delay in itself is still a good thing because delay could decrease mortality. We might still get as many cases, but we might be able to decrease the mortality given the advances we'll make in the interim, particularly with a vaccine coming. So is there a response to that? So I'm going to make a comment, but I, I didn't invent the comment and I don't like the term that I'm going to use, but I'm, going to, I'm just going to relay what my research has uncovered. But one of the reasons that we're probably going to have, we're going to continue to do better is don't forget over 50% of the deaths, and there's there's messy reporting, it's well over 50. Over 50% of the fatalities we've suffered have come from care facilities. So these are people that were, um, you, you know, not, not in great health. And, and what COVID does best is take people over the edge that are, that are close. And so they, they, uh, epidemiology term that I saw from uh, one of the scientists was, you know, there's a lot of dry timber and that, and this, this clear, this, you know, resolve some of them or take some of those lives. And, and so some of that, those lives are are gone, the more vulnerable. Uh, And so we are doing a lot better with respect to survivals and treatments. One of the reasons New York was such a wreck is the, um, the treatments were uh, and the, and the facilities and the resources, it was, it was a disaster. And, uh, and it's not because the federal government didn't provide. It's, it, was, it was just a train wreck. And so there's a good chance we, we probably lost 30% of those lives just, just you know, due to, due to uh, God, I don't want to say ineptitude, but, but if you read some inside cases or stories and talk to people there, it, was, it wasn't good. Uh, but again, if you're trying to get it to an absolute zero, we should all just go into solitary confinement, right? We could. We, we could actually squish it if we all went into solitary confinement for 90 days in a perfect scenario, but that isn't a practical thing. And so to your, your question on being a double, playing a devil's advocate, locking down strict when, uh, when you look at the demographics of this, where the median age of fatalities basically exceeds life expectancy in every single country of the world, that's not a reasonable balanced uh, tactic for America or for any country uh, versus writing it out and, and paying very close attention to insulating those that are most vulnerable. Hey folks, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor Blinkist. There's a great development that's happened with Blinkist. 
they now have Murray Rothbard's book, For a New Liberty, in Blink format. Now, what do I mean by that? Blinkist is an amazing app, works on your phone, your tablet, your web browser, and it's for people who have more to read than they can possibly handle. So it gives you the best key takeaways, everything you need to know from thousands of nonfiction bestsellers, condenses them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. So a lot of the times when I'm driving around, I find that I can consume the equivalent of three or four books in just one drive. And then I get a sense of whether reading the entire book would be a good use of my time. So for example, I just used Blinkist to consume the new book co-authored by our friend John Mackey of Whole Foods, Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business. And again, as I told you, Murray Rothbard's classic book, For a New Liberty, is also available on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks, yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com woods to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com woods. How about the section you have on the reopening criteria? That has varied by state. And I think maybe the most extreme case involves California, where there, at least in some places, they're trying to make it seem like there's some pre-existing science of reopenings that they're adhering to with different phases, when they're all just pulling it out of their you-know-what. But in California, I don't even think they're doing that. It's just, it's just we're never opening. <laughs> I mean, it's we're going to make this as difficult and obnoxious as we possibly can. What's your impression looking at the different states on this? Well, you know, so let's take California and New York as, as a couple of, you know, the extremes. You could throw in Illinois, you could, you could throw a few other states, but let's, let's talk about just California for a sec. They've got a case positivity rate as their overall metric. Again, the WHO estimated back in September that 750 million people uh, have probably been infected with the virus. At that time, that was a 17-fold increase over what, what was the actual case numbers worldwide. That uh, run rate in America was 153 million six weeks ago. So if, if you or somebody buys into that, it would be higher now. But regardless, no reasonable person would contradict that we have over 100 million people that, that could test positive if we could do that right now. But, so that's a given. So you look at California... If you test enough, you will get a lot of positive cases, particularly the way we amplify testing with kind of dead, non-transmittable viruses, the viral particles um, that you would uncover. So California is at 5% right now, 5% hospital capacity, which basically means hospitals are empty of COVID patients. I mean, that's a very low number. And so, again, what is your end game here? Because we, we locked down and everybody bought in early on. I mean, I can't say I did because I was reconciling this cruise ship data. It never made sense to me from, from the beginning. But let's just play along and say uh, we, were, we were being uh, cautious. We're not at risk of, of uh, overwhelming the healthcare system. So what is the end game? You've got not one identifiable instance in the world of schools being opened in that resulting in an outbreak that has resulted in uh, hospitalizations and deaths. I mean, we you'll remember this because you follow us so close, but in September, it was all the hype about all these outbreaks at colleges and universities. And so now we've got, you know, somewhat 250, close to 300,000 college kids that have tested positive. You know this, so I'm going to ask you, how many hospitalizations and deaths have come out of that? 
Uh, The latest number I've seen is a little bit out of date, but I think it's three hospitalizations and no deaths. Yeah, so, and I'd heard a little higher. I'd heard more like a dozen hospitalizations and and a handful, like a half, five or six. Yeah, 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 right. So I think my number is is a couple of months out of date. That was the last one I'd seen. But it's it's, it's essentially a rounding error, to be blunt. Well, more kids will die from uh, at colleges and universities from uh, driving to campus, driving to campus or alcohol or something like that. And so it's very frustrating when they're not at any measurable risk. And then like some of the, like one of the most boneheaded policies I've seen, and I wrote a piece on this in the Washington Times, but um, you know, Boulder was having Colorado, Boulder, Colorado was having a spike uh, around university of Colorado students going back. So what did they do? They locked down, there was a county state order or county order to lock down just 18 to 22 year olds. So imagine the worst lockdown that we had in like California or New York or Illinois. That's what the order was for these college kids, just 18 to 22 year olds. And I made a joke that it was probably the first time in history that a 21 year old would be paying to get a fake ID to be 17, right? Uh, but instead of just writing it out and maybe putting notices out to the community saying, we're getting a spike, we're getting a lot of positive tests. If you are in a vulnerable uh, segment, you know, if you're elderly or you've got specific two to three comorbidities, you should keep a low profile for four to six weeks. That's just what you should do. And, you know, I, I don't know when, you, again, your reopening criteria, California, I don't understand the end game. Hospitals are empty. The Bay Area hasn't even hardly been touched statistically. It's been very, very light. You know, you look at that in New York, it's like we're only looking through this through a lens of squishing the virus down to like an absolute zero and be damned with any of the fallout consequences. And that is not a realistic balance or expectation. What do you think, or what do you think in your book is a point or two that's been most overlooked even by people who agree with you? I think that the most important thing is contextualizing the death data compared to what could be considered acceptable or traditional. So, you know, I kind of open it up talking about some context of past pandemics and what did we do, which was basically nothing when you look at the Hong Kong and Asian flu, that this is much, much less severe, far less severe than the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu in today's population would kill over 1.8 million people. We will not get to that point. And part of it is the Spanish flu's most vulnerable population segment was men 20 to 40, right? I mean, that is, that would be significant. In our case, this is, um, you know, this data, but it's, it's less dangerous. COVID-19 is less dangerous to, you know, people under 60, let's say, and healthy. And if you're over 75, it is more dangerous. And if you've got, if you're severely obese, you've got severe diabetes, you, you are at more risk. But the gift that it gave us is, we know that and we can identify those people. You know, it's not like it attacks college kids and things. And so I feel like contextualizing all that and then presenting information on all the collateral consequences of the lockdowns in terms of education and deaths of despair and ailments, you know, healthcare issues that are, that are going undiagnosed and untreated. I feel like that I'm providing context. And you could read my entire book and not know who I voted for. I did not make it a political book. And I even defended Governor Cuomo's nursing home decision in the moment. You know, one of the things I, I thought in the, in the moment, Tom, and I believe this even looking back, is you've got a couple days and you're rushing around and there's a bit of panic. I don't know that it would have been intuitive to Cuomo to know, and other governors like Whitmer, for example, 
it seems like it was intuitive to your governor and he had a week or two later, uh, DeSantis, but let's go back to Cuomo for a second. The people who, who really should have identified that on the front end, you look at Burks and Fauci, you look at Dr. Redfield, and you look at the um, HHS people, state health secretaries in these states, Pennsylvania, they should have intuitively known based on the cruise ship data and what was happening in Italy, older people are more vulnerable. And so somebody should have connected the dots that you don't send a COVID-19 positive patient into the lion's den. And I think those people should all be fired or removed from office for just incompetence. And I don't use that lightly, but I, I mean, I feel like no one really blames those individuals or disciplines. They tend to blame the governors. And I, I just think it's a, um, I think it's terrible that, uh, you know, our healthcare people haven't been held accountable for that. Well, the book is COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial. I'm going to link to it on our show notes page, which is tomwoods.com slash 1779. Do you have a website you want me to direct people to as well? Well, you know what, uh, Tom, thank you. The, um, the book's available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And, uh, and then, you know, on the foreword of the book, even if you do a preview, my email address is available. And anybody that has any questions or would like to discuss it, I'm open. Okay, excellent. So tomwoods.com slash 1779 as where people should go for the easy link to get the book. And Michael, thanks so much for, you know, doing this in record time. Tremendous. And you know what, Tom, you've done some great work. You're so passionate about this and you're one of the leaders. And I, I appreciate you giving this important topic a real platform. Thank you very much. All right, folks. Well, if you like and appreciate what I'm doing, make sure and head over to supportinglisteners.com because man, do I give a lot of benefits to people who support the show, not least of which is membership inside the sanity-preserving Tom Wood Show Elite private group. So head over to supportinglisteners.com. And again, I'm telling you, don't miss tomorrow's episode, 1780. You're going to be sorry if you do. So tune in for that, and I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.